0: You are listening to Sermon Audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more Sermon Audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Jesus, we ask this morning, as we take a few minutes, as as we dig through your word, God, we ask that you would illuminate the text to us, Holy Spirit, that you would be our interpreter. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would convict us of sin, that you would remind us of the truth, of your gospel, that you would draw us to new life in you, that you would remind us of things we've forgotten. We need you this morning. So we ask God that, that as we dig into your word, that, that the thoughts in our minds, the words of our mouth, that these things would be pleasing to you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Morning. morning. We are back in Mark I know some of you are like, why didn't, why didn't Jeff preach when he's in town? I told him no. You left. You lost that, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, man. Uh, no, the, the, real, the, the real reason is man, I'm going I'm to be out a lot, and so I, want, I wanted to make sure uh, with travel, and I'm, I'm going to India this week with Jeff, and I, I wanted to make sure that I got to go through this text with you guys. Um, that that we're we're transitioning today kind of our theme. We've, We've put different focuses in our study on Mark as we've worked our way through it. And this week we are transitioning into the final run of Mark. And we're we're using this theme, a ransom for many, as we talk about this last kind of major movement in Mark, and it's from our text today. And and I'm not joking when I say this. When I when I sat down and I thought about our church going through the gospel of Mark together, this was the passage I was thinking about. And so I was kinda like, eh, sorry. I'm going to do this one. <laughs> uh, but but seriously, I'm really excited for this. It's a long passage, so we're going to jump straight into it. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 10, and we'll dig into a little more today this phrase, a ransom for many, and why why it kind of is going to be our, our focusing thought as we end out the book. If you don't have a Bible with you today, I would encourage you to look at the end of our aisles of these house Bibles. We we just really, really believe in the power of the Word of God. We want to make sure um, that everyone has access to it. If you need a Bible this morning, grab one of those or look at someone in the end of the aisle. They'll hand you one. If you don't have a Bible, please just snag one of those or talk to one of our pastors and we'll, we'll get you one. It's a little nicer. Uh, but we're, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10 today, starting in verse 32, where we read this. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, "'Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you.' And he said to them, "'What do you want me to do for you?' And they said to him, "'Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory.'" And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be the first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many." We kind of cover three major scenes and I wanted to make sure we put them together. And the reason is, is simply this. We, we've talked a lot about kind of what sets Mark apart from the other Gospels and his telling of Jesus' life and Jesus' story. And the thing that really kind of makes Mark unique among the Gospels is not his storytelling as much as it is his construction of those stories. Mark tends to tell really short, brief stories. His accounts of things are usually much more condensed and a little more intense than the other uh, Gospels' tellings of the same story. But what Mark does is he places things in order And he sets up a pacing and a structure where the larger text paints a really, really cool picture, and we can easily miss that in a context like this where we're preaching to the Bible exegetically in verse by verse. We tend to zone in on smaller sections at a time, and that's really beautiful. And it and it brings out, I think, aspects of the text and the teaching that we would miss on maybe a normal reading or personal study, but. But one of the things that sets Mark apart is when he puts stories and texts and pieces right next to each other on purpose. And I wanted you to see these three scenes right next to each other. And the reason is this. We're in this larger section of Mark, that's Mark 8, 9, and 10, that kind of makes up the middle of the whole gospel of Mark. And the reason that's important is because we've talked a ton about this weird thing called the Markin sandwich, right? That that Mark likes to layer stories next to each other where he'll start a story and then stop and tell another one and then finish the first story he started. And the center story gives some context or meaning or description to the story surrounding that. And he does that several times throughout the book. And what you see in this section in Mark 8, 9, and 10, in these three repeated scenes of Jesus' foretelling of his death, that this creates an interpretive lens for the entire rest of the book of Mark. And so what we have, and we've talked about this a little bit, is after the transfiguration, Jesus has let the cat out of the bag with his disciples, right? You guys figured it out. I'm the Messiah. Let's go to Jerusalem. And in this section of, of Jesus kind of finishing out his ministry in Galilee and making his way toward Jerusalem, the story is just rolling into this fever pitch of energy. And that's built around these three predictions Jesus gives along the way. After he lets the cat out of the bag and says, hey, I'm the Messiah, and they begin making their way towards Jerusalem, and everyone is just anticipating what is going to happen when the Messiah enters Jerusalem, Jesus keeps bringing them back to this thing where he goes, listen, 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 listen. I know you think you know what the Messiah is, but listen to me. This isn't what you think it is. When I get there, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die, and I'm going to come back to life. And they have no concept of what that means. I I think it's funny when we when we read this story. Right, if we wanted to put our text today into an outline. It's the very last stretch of their journey into Jerusalem, and as they're marching along, and Jesus is leading the way, and they're everyone's just kind of like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And there's this excitement and fear mixing together. Jesus is like, let me give you one more reminder about what is actually about to happen, and he gives this really detailed prediction of his coming passion and his coming death and his coming suffering and his coming resurrection. And his disciples respond by basically going, huh. So anyway, they have no no connection to what he actually says. And if, if you've been following kind of the pacing of these couple chapters, this part of the text is is almost baffling, right? James and John respond to Jesus' prediction of His suffering, death, and resurrection by going, hey, would you mind giving us some power and authority? We'd be super down for that. It would be really cool. And it starts this big fight amongst all the apostles, where they're indignant with each other, going back and forth. And Jesus rallies them together, and he gives this teaching on what the kingdom is actually like. And then they go into this story where he heals a blind man, and that's the last scene before they enter into Jerusalem. Now, this story can be baffling to us because of following the pacing, where Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to raise again. And then they immediately go back, To this weird, jacked up understanding of the Messiah, where they're like, cool, that's awesome, but who's gonna be your right hand man when your kingdom comes in power, and who's gonna have authority, and can it be me? Can I be that person? And they just totally miss it. And for us as the reader, we're like, James, John, what is your problem? You have seen the stuff he's done. He like tells demons what to do and he controls the weather and he heals people and he can, can do all this stuff and he's straight up telling you that's not how it's going to go down and you're just ignoring him, right? But there's actually a lot of really good reasons why they would ignore him. The, 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 the main good reason is Jesus is speaking. We have the benefit of being on the other side of the cross when we read this text. And, and we have the gift of actually actually being able to see the gospel story from beginning to end. But they don't have that, right? These are, these are first century Jewish folk who are living underneath the teaching of the Old Testament and the rabbis of their day. And what Jesus is teaching here about the Messiah is so far outside the realm of their understanding of theology and kingdom that they do not have a category for it. It would be similar to a preacher today being like, sweet, Jesus is coming back really soon. Just so you know, when he comes back, it's gonna be great. He's gonna like make you guys super, super comfortable. It's gonna be all about just like consumerism and stuff and just like anything you want stuff-wise. Jesus is gonna come back and be like, woo, MacBooks, iPods, cars. And we would sit here and go, that, that, like there's no concept for that and how we under, like, that's not what the scripture teaches. That's not what it says. Right? Like we would we would hear that and immediately go, That doesn't work. Something you're saying here is way off. But with Jesus, you can't do that. Because it's like, yeah, you may think I'm off, but check this out, I just healed this blind guy. You're like, well, I don't know what to do about that. <laughs> you gotta have something going on, right? That the whole thing, think about this for a moment. The reason Jesus was killed was because they thought he was a heretic. Right? They heard his teaching and said, that's not what it says. That's not how it works. That's not what the Messiah will be. You are wrong. You cannot be from God. And they killed him for it. Because his teaching was so far outside the box. Now, really quick here, I'm not trying to compare Jesus is teaching to like a prosperity gospel person. Uh, just trying to give us a, a point of reference there. The thing to remember is that at this point in redemptive history, the, the people aren't just sitting under the inspired word of God, but they have all these added human teachings and traditions that have been built upon the word and that has distorted their understanding of what God had promised to do, but they don't have the mental or theological space to separate those things out. One of Jesus' primary critiques of the religious leaders of his day was that they added human traditions to the Word of God. And one of Jesus' primary roles in teaching was to take the Jewish people's misconceptions about Scripture and say, you think it says this, but go back to the text that actually says this, right? And so they've taken God's promises of Salvation is promise of the Messiah, and they've distorted it in such a way that when the Messiah himself shows up, no one has a context to understand it. No one actually knows what's going on. His closest friends in the world, who have seen him do miracles, who he's literally looking at them and saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to raise from the dead. And they're going, huh, yeah, probably not. Uh, So anyway, and they just keep moving on. They have no concept for what Jesus is teaching about about God's actual kingdom and where it's coming from. And by the way, just a a second real quick reason here of why it would be easy to miss Jesus is um, I think at this point they're pretty much used to Jesus saying stuff that's confusing, right? Like they've been hanging out for three years and he's like really often just like, I mean, you know, if you have eyes to see it, you'll see it. If not, I I don't know, you just don't even know what I'm talking about. And they're kind of used to going... Yeah, yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Right? So so Jesus gives this teaching. They don't know what it is, and they don't even skip a beat. James and John come up to Jesus as they're walking along, and they're just like, hey, Jesus, that's really cool, the whole Messiah thing. I know we're almost to Jerusalem. Hey, really quick, you know, when your kingdom comes along, um, how about, how, how well, actually, you know, will you do us a favor? I love this part. If you have kids, you know exactly what's going on right here, right? James and John are like, hey, Jesus, would you do something... Something for us that we'd ask you to do? And Jesus' response is just like, well, what do you want? <laughs> you can see like my kid doing this right now, right? Like they're asking Jesus for this blank check. Just to be like, hey, will you just, will you just supernaturally do something for us real quick? Like just, no, don't worry about the details yet. I just really need a firm commitment on whether or not you're willing to do this. And Jesus asks them, what do you want? And then they, they out it. They, they fess up and they just say, we want to be you're number one, you're number two. When your kingdom comes in power, we want the highest positions with you. We want to be in power with you. And Jesus really lovingly and really kindly is just like, you have no idea what you're actually asking. You have no idea. And he, he uses this really strong language, right? Of, of This is actually kind of interesting. A little contextual note is Jesus's response here to us as Christians on the other side of the cross is kind of beautiful because it's very uh, it's very ordinance language, right? The cup and the baptism, and to us those mentally connect to these these images of reverent worship, right? But in this in this point in redemptive history, both of these images are very violent. Uh, these these would be theologically connected to God's wrath and to suffering and things like that. The cup of wrath and the baptism, the deluge of God's wrath, and so. Uh, he gives this image and says, you sure you can do this? And they're like, oh, yeah, oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And Jesus' response here is is so chilling because they miss it, where he goes, you don't even know. You will. But you still don't. I, I, I don't get to choose who's my number one, my number two. That's not my deal. I don't get to choose that. And so there's this foreshadowing there, right, of, of the actual call of the disciple and the life the apostles will live post-resurrection. But, but they come, the, the point that I want us to see in this part of the story is these guys are scheming, right? And I think there's something really intense here because you remember James and John, like they're, they're asking Jesus for the highest positions of authority and power in his kingdom, but they're already really, really privileged in Jesus' life. You know what I mean? They're, they're not just part of the crowd that has heard Jesus and seen his miracles and they're following him. They're amongst the 12 people that Jesus prayed to God and called out by name and invited to follow with him and be a part of his life and his ministry for the last three years. They're amongst the people that Jesus sent out with his authority to cast out demons and preach the word. They're not even just amongst the twelve, by the way. Peter, James, and John are the three people who make up Jesus' inner circle of closest friendship. These two men were invited onto the mountain of transfiguration to see Jesus in his glory. Right? And as they're walking along, they're like, man, it's been a really cool ride so far. You know the only thing that would make it better? if we got Peter out of here, am I right? <laughs> and so they basically are asking Jesus to kind of push Peter aside and be like, hey, listen, I know we're already in your inner circle, but we're like one and two, right? Peter's three, but that's how that works. And man, I know like we can laugh at that, but I want to I stop us really quick for a second here because I feel like there is something there that some of us need to hear this morning. How... How easy is it in the midst of blessing to to lose actual, like, lose track of why the blessing matters? How, How easy is it in the midst of receiving good gifts and love and blessing to somehow turn ourselves and bend ourselves inward and to turn the purpose of those things toward our own betterment and our own blessing and our own empowerment and our own glory? Right? I mean, these are Jesus' closest friends who've been so privileged and somehow, somehow, they still manage to take that blessing and turn it inward and focus on themselves. I feel like that's a warning for some of us, for all of us, Western Church, who's blessed with insane amounts of religious freedom and comfort and wealth let us Let us not take the privilege and blessing the Lord has given us and turn it inward that we might receive more glory and more power and more authority, right That blessing exists for a purpose and Jesus was really clear to James and John why that blessing exists for them. By the way, that represents the uh, those two brothers represent one of one of them as the first Christian martyr beheaded still on, in acts so like there's reality there. The blessing is for a purpose, and the purpose is not glory of self and power of self. So they, they ask Jesus for this power and this authority and this, and this glory, and Jesus really kindly is like, Ha, 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 no and they keep walking and the other apostles get wind of it and it just turns into this big fight and by the way i i want to just i love to point out here really quick the wording mark chooses here is he says they get indignant with each other and they start arguing and bickering and they're angry and i think it's fun fun to notice that mark has just used that word indignant really recently and it was when jesus became indignant of the 12 right he expressed his anger toward these same people. And I think it's important for us to know that Jesus became indignant with his closest friends when they were hindering people from actually spending time with him and receiving the gift of the gospel. The disciples became indignant with the 12 when they were grubbing over power. So just a little, a little contrast there for us. But Jesus sees their bickering. He calls them together and he says, listen, you need to listen to me for a second. This is not how it's going to work. And he gives this beautiful teaching where he once again contrasts the kingdom of God that he has been declaring. Remember, all the way back since Mark 1, verse 15, Jesus' message has been one message, the entire book according to Mark's telling. And that's repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is coming. It's here. You can be a part of it. And now, in kind of his last moments of ministry with these men, he's reminding them, this is what that kingdom looks like. This is the kingdom I've been declaring this whole time. And and he's kind of built up this, in the, in this section, right, of three predictions and three teachings. And then, by the way, this is how Mark structures it for us, is that as they're making their journey down to Jerusalem, Jesus predicts his death. The disciples totally miss what he's saying, put their foot in their mouths and get really selfish. And Jesus gives them a teaching about how the kingdom is different than the way they think it is. And so that's happened. This is the third time. It's the most intense. It's the most specific prediction of his death. It's the most blunderous and preposterous gribing for power of the three. And Jesus gives the most intense teaching on the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. Where, where at first, right, he talked about how, man, in this world, people win or people, kingdoms work by holding power and by winning and by defeating their enemies. But in my kingdom, people win by losing. And so if you want to follow after me, take up your cross and be crucified and killed. And then in the second, the second piece, he talks about what it means to, to actually sacrifice your life and your authority and says, man, in this world, power and authority and kingdoms work off of having control over others other people and having power and authority but in my kingdom you serve and here he takes this and takes it a step further and says listen kingdoms of this world garner authority over those weaker than them and they they keep control over people weaker than them. listen to this those who are considered rulers of the gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them but it shall not be so among you. And I want you to hear that phrase, it shall not be so among you. I won't get into the nuance of the grammar here, but I want, what I want you to hear is that Jesus is not encouraging or challenging them right now. He is simply describing the state of being that is his kingdom. He's not saying, listen, guys, try really hard to be humble and not lord power and authority over others. He's saying, in my kingdom, it doesn't work that way, and it won't be that way, period. If you find yourself garnering and and grubbing for power and authority that you might lord it over others, I have sad news for you. You are not operating in my kingdom because that's not how my kingdom works, period. And he says here, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. And he's talked about this already. My kingdom doesn't work like normal kingdoms. If you want to be first, then you choose to be last. You humble yourself if you want to have authority. But here, he's zoning in on purpose behind power and authority. Yeah, you need to be humble. Yeah, you need to be served. You need to serve others. But man, you, in my kingdom, you, the power and authority isn't to glorify yourself. It isn't to raise yourself up. It isn't to lord over those who are over you. That's how this world works. It is not so in my kingdom. In my kingdom, if you, if you want to be great, you don't just humble yourself and serve. You become a slave. You give up all sense of authority and power and control. You give that up joyfully. And then, and then you hear, hear this. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He brings us home and says, man, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, you're not going to win. You're going to lose. You need to be willing to die and give up your life. If you're going to be a part of my kingdom, you need to be willing to be a servant, to be last, to not be up front. You need to take your desire for control and power and authority and you need to throw it away and you need to joyfully become a slave because that's what I do. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, what Jesus is saying here is, listen, it's my kingdom. I'm the one in power and authority. And I'm not going to lord it over you. In fact, I'm going to humble myself. In fact, I'm going to die joyfully. And in fact, I'm going to give myself to serve you. I'm going to give my life as a ransom. Come on. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is so inverted from the kingdoms of this world because God is not like the kings of this world. And Jesus is not like the kings of this world. I'm going to divert here really, really briefly. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, except that I know that some of you guys are probably thinking of this, or if you study this, this will probably come up to you. But this this phrase that we're zoning in on here, a ransom for many, is one that has actually caused historically some theological problems for the church. And it comes down to this idea that Jesus has spent a lot of time in Mark talking about Satan's authority over the broken and cursed world and his invasion of that world to take back that kingdom from Satan. And and that imagery that's used in Mark led some early Christian theologians to take this particular phrase and build this theology that oh so satan is holding humanity captive spiritually and jesus had to give his life to satan as as a ransom to, to buy them back as as like prisoners of war and that was actually an established doctrine in the church for a season but i'm, I'm not gonna camp on this because it's really not super important and if you want to dig into this we can jump out and get a coffee and talk about it but i, I want you to hear this this just not what it is It's just not what it is. There's there's no universe, there is no concept of reality within which Satan has any power or authority over Jesus, and Jesus has to do anything for him. In fact, the image that Jesus gives of Satan in his description of his authority over the world in Mark is that he's going to come into this world and tie up Satan and take everything he wants from him, and Satan can't do anything about it. And he calls himself a stronger, strong man and says, this guy has nothing. I'm going to rob him blind in front of him and he'll be helpless to do anything. Beloved, Jesus did not pay his life as a ransom to Satan because Satan has no authority or bargaining chips with Jesus. He paid his life as a ransom to a holy and righteous God. He he gave himself freely and joyfully to himself to pay the price of sin. Because no one has authority over Jesus and no one takes anything from him, but he gives it freely. Amen. So I don't want to divert us there. If you want to dig into ransom atonement theory and get into the systematics behind it, we can grab a coffee and I'll geek out with you on that. But I wanted us to get that image. This this phrase Jesus is using here is, is so key to our understanding of this entire book guys, the kingdom I've been declaring for ten chapters up to this point is about one thing and one thing only. The God of the universe loves you so much that He's going to joyfully serve you. Now that is weird. That is uncomfortable even to say out loud, right? To articulate that, that Jesus is delightfully and joyfully giving Himself to serve us, right? It just doesn't seem right that the sovereign God of the universe would do that. But this is precisely what Jesus is saying. I'm here because I love you and I want to serve you. I want to bless you with my presence. I want to joyfully give of myself and suffer. I'm not a king who lords my authority over my people. I'm a king who humbly serves and gives myself as a slave to my people. That's weird. It's really weird. It's hard to swallow. It doesn't sound real when you talk about it. And then this beautiful thing happens. They keep walking, right? And they get to Jericho and they leave Jericho and this is the last stop on their journey. They are walking up to the gates of Jerusalem and there's this guy named Bart who is blind. Bartimaeus, but just blind Bart just sounds so good, doesn't it? So <laughs> blind Bart's on the side of the road. And he hears that Jesus is coming and he calls out to him, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus is walking with his crowd and this huge group is gathered around him and the energy is up to a fever pitch. Remember, we're about to see the triumphant energy and people shouting and laying down their clothes like this is the level of energy we're talking about. And people start telling us, shut up. Shut up, you got to watch this. He's he's making his way to Jerusalem. And Bart won't hear it, and he yells all the louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. And he's shouting over the crowd, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops. And he calls him over. Beloved, if if you don't hear anything else today, I want you to see this scene. And I want you to see Jesus' view of you right now. Because this is the king of the universe triumphantly returning to his city to claim his people in the midst of a a huge pomp and circumstance and shouting and energy. In the midst of that moment, the king of the universe stops and gives his time and attention and energy to a blind beggar who's calling out to him. Beloved, this is the truth of the gospel. That the God of the universe does not lord his authority but he makes himself a servant. There is, there is nothing going on in Jesus' life that is so important that he does not joyfully stop for you, hear you, see you, and meet you in the reality of your hurt. I want you to hear that today the king of the universe, can be marching triumphantly to take back his city and he will gladly stop the entire parade to sit and talk to you for a moment. This is our Jesus. And so he comes to Bart and he says, what do you want? I love that, by the way. It's the exact same question he asked James and John. What do you want me to do for you? And I'm like James and John who... Who ask for power and authority? Bart just says, "I just want to see," and Jesus gives him his sight back. And his response is to get up and follow Jesus. Whew. What a story! What an image, right? And I, I want you to see the, the the contrast the contrast between these these two stories. See what we have here between James and John and and blind Bart is we have two groups of blind people, right? James and John, Jesus' closest friends, who have walked with him and seen his power and heard his teaching, and yet somehow are blind to the truth of what he is teaching. They call Jesus aside and say, hey, can can we have some of your time really quick? And Jesus says, of course, what do you want me to do for you? And they say, could you really just glorify us and make us awesome and powerful? And Jesus is like, no, let's keep going. And then another blind beggar comes up to the king, Jesus, and says, can I have some of your time and attention? And Jesus says, yes, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, I really just want to see. And so the first two guys get the full attention of their king, but continue walking on blind. And the second guy gets the full attention of his king and asked to see. And when he's given the gift of sight, the thing he chooses to do with it is to keep looking at Jesus. Come on. Come on. He could have run home to his family. He could have gone out and gotten a job. He could have done a million things, but what he chose to do was look at the one who gave him his sight. Oh, beloved, do you hear this truth today? Your God has time for you. He sees you. He loves you. He serves you. He's he's calling you. What an image. Can you put yourself in the scene with Bartimaeus as he is crying out at the top of his lungs while people are telling him to shut up and then one person goes, actually, wait just a minute. I, I think Jesus wants to see him. And then all of a sudden, like a switch, the whole crowd turns and they go, he actually wants to talk to you. Get up, go over there. And he has no idea where he's going. he can't see. Really? And he's wandering and they go, no, over here. He actually wants to see you. That, that image, right, of just, oh, so desperate for Jesus. Calling out to Jesus, he knows he 's close, but he doesn 't know exactly where he is He, he hears the crowds he, he hears that he knows that Jesus is close and he 's calling to him, and Jesus calls him over, he gives him sight, invites him to be with him beloved this this is the invitation of Jesus, because you see the truth about the reality of the kingdom. The reality of how the God of the universe chooses to interact with you, his creation, does not terminate with him. See, as Jesus describes reality in his kingdom, authority doesn't work that way in my kingdom. You don't lord authority over other people because I don't. See, Jesus describes the reality that He, the God of the universe, the triumphant, all-powerful King, is about to joyfully give His life for His creation who don't deserve it. And this truth draws us to joy. It invites us in. It has time for us. It meets us on the side of the road. But it also calls us. It doesn't terminate at that. It calls us. Beloved, I want you to know that you can spend a lot of time with Jesus and you can still be blind as a bat. You can call to Jesus and he can give you his time and attention and energy and you can still be blind. James and John knew more about Jesus than any other human beings on the planet. And yet Bart was the one who understood the kingdom in that moment. Beloved, I want you to hear this. You have been called into Christ's kingdom with Him. But that means something. It means dignity and life and joy and freedom for you. It means inclusion in, in the beautiful gift that is the kingdom of God. It means eternity with Christ. It means freedom and forgiveness from your sins. It means true life. But it also means Suffering in this world. And it means embracing suffering with joy and anticipation. And that's brutal. And that's weird. And it's disconnected from our reality. Because we are blessed, comfortable, separate people. I want you to hear that. Jesus describes his kingdom In His kingdom, people pick up their cross and they follow after Jesus. In His kingdom, people choose to be last instead of first. In His kingdom, people willfully give themselves up as slaves to serve others. They give up their lives to bless other people. And I want you to hear this. That's not a challenge from Jesus. That's simply a description of His kingdom. It's simply a description of what life with Jesus looks like. It looks like joyful sacrifice. So the question we must ask ourselves this morning is simply this. Does your life look like Jesus' kingdom? Do you actually live in a way that looks like what Jesus describes? Do you actually experience the kingdom of God Because we know for a fact that you can walk up to Jesus and have a conversation with Him and be totally blind to those things. We see that. And beloved, I I say this as your pastor, as your friend, as one of you who who cares about us, who, who doesn't want you to experience that, but I say that confessionally. Because I do that. Because I, I love this world. And I love comforts. And I, I love all these lesser things that are in front of me. Because it's so easy to love them. Because you're steeped in them and surrounded in them. And I love to fill up my arms with them and walk alongside Jesus. But beloved, that is not the call of the kingdom. The call of the kingdom is to drop those things. <clears throat> follow after Jesus, to embrace suffering, to give yourself up to serve others, to joyfully, joyfully embrace what is wrong with this world that you might have what is right with Jesus. The call of this kingdom is to suffer now <coughs> and enjoy eternity with Jesus. Beloved, We, if we ask Jesus to see he will let us see. If we ask him for life and forgiveness and inclusion, he will give it to us. He will give us his time. No one who wants Jesus has refused Jesus. The question is, when you open your eyes, what would you choose to do with that sight? Would your desire to be to just keep gazing upon Jesus, to follow after him, to be with your healer, Would your eyes turn to the things of this world? I think if we're honest, it's probably both. I'm going to end out, I don't have a cool conclusion. I'm going to end out by reading what the prophet Isaiah said about Jesus' ministry and about the kingdom. So I'm going to read this and then we're going to pray and we're going to sing one more song and we'll end out our time today. But speaking in the power of the Spirit about Jesus in his ministry and the kingdom he declared, the prophet Isaiah said this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. And he had no form or majesty that we should look upon him and no beauty that we should desire him. In fact, he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows, and he was acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed Him to be stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brings us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one in His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him The iniquity of us. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before it shears is silent. He opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of God's people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him and put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Beloved, this is your Jesus. This is the God who came as a slave to all, who gave his life as a ransom for you and for me. And this is the kingdom he has invited us into. Jesus, you are so good to us. You are better to us than we deserve. You are more kind to us than we deserve. God, you serve, and you serve, and you serve, and you give, and you give, and you give. And I receive your blessings gladly. And I receive them as though they terminate on me. God, I confess to you that I have not joyfully heard your call to come and die. That I love the blessings you give me and yet I hoard them for myself. Jesus, break us of this. Break us of this. Call us into the life and sacrifice of your kingdom. Be glorified in us and glorified in our lives. Jesus, we love you for this. We trust you for this. We need you to do this work in our crooked hearts. So we pray these things dependent on you. As as blind people on the side of the road who can just kind of hear that you're walking by. Jesus, we need you. Have mercy on us. Let us see. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.